This morning's reading is um, Mark 6, 1 to 13. He left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his siblings here with us? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to them, Prophets are not without honor, except in their hometown, and among their own kin, and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Then he went about among the villages teaching. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. If any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. Our second reading is also from Mark 6, um, 14 to 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason, these powers are at work in him. But others said, it is Elijah, and others said, it is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. <clears throat> but an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, even half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? She replied, The head of John the baptizer. Immediately, she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved 
Yet, out of regard for his oaths and for the guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on the platter and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. May the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. If you think that an obsessive interest in the private lives of the royal family is a relatively recent product of the tabloid press, think again. The sport of royal watching is as old as the notion of royalty itself, and in the absence of the Daily Mail and the Express in the first century, I offer you Mark chapter 6 and the Herodian dynasty, a classic example of dysfunctional power, lust and intrigue. The precise ins and outs of the Herodian family are extremely complicated and quite hard to grasp, and it's possible that Mark himself didn't have a perfect hold on it, but we'll go with it anyway. Um, I'm, I'm not going to talk you through this, but this does give you an, an insight into some of the complexities of the family. It was a large and wealthy multi-generational dynasty that fought among itself as furiously as any contemporary dictatorship. So Herod Antipas, they, they were all kind of called Herod. It's a bit like a surname that comes first. So Antipas, or Herod Antipas, uh, the Herod of our story, was one of the many sons of Herod the Great, who had famously executed two of his other sons some years earlier, leaving his young granddaughter, Herodias, orphaned. She was then made to marry her half-uncle, Herod Philip, and their daughter, we know from other historical sources, was called Salome, although Salome is never named in the Bible. It was almost certainly this Salome, who is both Herod the Great's granddaughter and his great-granddaughter, depending on which parental line you go up, who dances the famous uh, dance of the seven veils, although again, that's not in the Bible either, for her uncle Herod Antipas and ends up asking for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And you thought the House of Windsor was complicated. The level of scandal in the Herodian household would fuel enough documentaries to last a lifetime. And I, for one, would love to see Emily Maitlis sitting down with uh, one of these Herods and uh, putting him through his paces. Anyway, it's worth spending a few moments unpicking some of what's going on here in this story that leads to the death of Jesus' cousin John, because this is more than just a story about a sex-obsessed man making drunken promises to a pretty girl, although it is that. Rather, what we see here in the life and relationships of Herod Antipas is a man who is prey to the disastrous consequences of what psychologists call triangling. So uh, Murray Bowen, the founding father of family systems therapy, describes the emotional triangle as the basic molecule of every emotional system, whether that system is a family, a friendship group, 
a workplace, a dynasty, whatever. And he says triangles form as a way of absorbing or shifting anxiety. So, a relationship between just two people might be relaxed and calm when there's relatively little stress. But when the level of anxiety increases in one of the people or when tension arises between them, the classic human response at this point is to draw in a third party so that uh, the tension then can get dispersed by spreading it across three people rather than two. So in a, in a triangle, two can gang up on one and then bitch about them in their absence or highlight their shortcomings and scapegoat them for everyone's problems. And of course, if you think about your own relationships, maybe you know, you've been in this kind of situation at work, the, the power balance between people in a triangle can shift on a sixpence. Um, which two are colluding against the other one can change and shift several times during a day sometimes. Friends do this with friends. Parents do it with their children. One parent and a child might do it with the other parent. And we all do it because it's an emotionally convenient and satisfying, at least in the short term, strategy of always having someone else to blame. I mean, I, I work in a, Dawn's on maternity at the moment, but Dawn and James and I, who work here, we are enormous friends and great work colleagues. But if I'm really honest, and we've had this conversation as the three of us, there are moments where it's James and I against Dawn, and there are moments where it's James and Dawn against me, and there's mo you see what I mean? And it's not that we, we're, we're at each other's throats, but those sorts of power alliances just emerge. Think about your life, your friends, your work colleagues, your family. Each of us will sometimes be the one triangled against, as we discover that we're being asked to take the blame for things that aren't of our making or doing. And it is always ultimately destructive, as Herod experienced to John the Baptist's cost. So the first triangle in Herod's life was that between him, so I put him at the top there, his half-brother Herod Philip, same father, Herod the Great, different mothers, and Herod Philip's wife, Herodias. And the issue in this triangle was the tension between Herod Antipas and Herod Philip, both legitimate sons of Herod the Great, both with competing claims to be his heir. Both of them had been named as his heir at different points. Now, Philip's wife, Herodias, was, if you're keeping up, the granddaughter of Herod the Great by one of his executed sons. And so, by marrying her, Philip had strengthened his claim to the throne because he was married to somebody who was part of the dynasty. However, by the time we get to our story, Herodias has now been divorced from Herod Philip and is now married to Herod Antipas. So, just a, a thought on the women in this story. I am a bit troubled by the fact that the key women in this story are Herodias and the unnamed Salome, both of whom come off quite badly, and I'm suspicious about stories where the women always come off quite badly, because that says to me that they may be stories that have been written by men, 
and that their women are probably more victimized than they are uh, agents of evil. Just hold that thought for a moment. Anyway, this triangle between Herod Antipas and Herod Philip and Herodias, so Herod Philip's ex-wife, now Herod Antipas's wife, is a key psychological background to what follows. And according to the rules of triangling, the main reason Herod Antipas wanted Herodias was because she belonged to his brother. Envy and desire are powerful motivators in our emotional relationships. Herod was, to coin a phrase, desiring of his brother's wife. He wanted her and he wanted the status and potentially increased right to being the heir to the throne that would come with it. But as with all desire born out of envy, once he had her, of course, Herod found his desire to be as unsatisfied as ever. It's almost as if he needed the tension of the triangle to drive him to Herodias, and the desire faded once he had won her. Which takes us to our second triangle, that of Herod, Herodias, and Salome, who was Herodias's daughter by her marriage to Philip. By now... Herod Antipas had fallen out of desire with Herodias, having bested his brother and taken his wife. And now it's time for his next conquest, which is her daughter. In this second triangle, Herodias is no longer the desired other. She's now the obstacle to what Herod wants, which is her daughter Salome. And this is where the third triangle comes in, that of Herod and John and Salome. We're told by Mark that Herod loved to hear John preach. Did you notice that as we were going through? It's weird, isn't it? Why was Herod liking hearing John preach when basically all John was doing was telling him that he can't do the very thing he's going to do? I find myself wondering if there's a clue here. If Herod, you see, could convince himself that his marriage to Herodias was now unlawful, he could set her aside and start making moves on her daughter, his current stepdaughter, Salome. We get an insight here into why uh, Herod might have quite liked John telling him that he shouldn't have married Herodias because he didn't want to be married to Herodias anymore. It's a bit like Henry VIII, isn't it? Trying to look for a legitimate reason to set aside a, another wife in order to move on to the next conquest. And we also begin to get an insight into why Herodias might want John silenced because he's a huge threat to her stability and status. I mean, she is a woman who has been passed around from man to man within this dynasty, probably with very little choice about what happens to her. And she knows that if Herod takes John's condemnation of their marriage to heart and casts her aside in favour of Salome, she's going to lose everything, possibly even her life. Honestly, with this much intrigue, it starts to sound like the storyline from an Oscar Wilde play. Those of you who know the Oscar Wilde play Salome will get that gag. Those of you who don't, I've just explained it to you. So here we have Herod skewered into dysfunctional inaction by his triangulated relationships with Philip, Herodias, Salome and John. And all it takes now to tip him over the edge into violence is a few drinks, a sexy dance and the opportunity to show off in front of a crowd. And the whole scene, by this point in the way Mark tells the story, has an air of a sacrificial ritual in search of a victim. And Mark gives quite a lot of wordage to the build-up here. And it's not done by accident. With this much tension and anxiety in the room, 
it's going to end badly for someone. And this, of course, is precisely the point that Mark wants his readers to take from this. You see, the death of John the Baptist, here in chapter 6 of Mark's Gospel, is to be read as a precursor to the crucifixion of Jesus, which we meet much later in the story. Jesus is similarly triangled and scapegoated by both the powers that be and the gathered crowd, as they seek a mechanism to violently transfer their dysfunctional anxiety and corporate guilt onto an innocent third party. And the scandalous story of Herod, Herodias, Salome, and John becomes what the Apostle Paul calls the scandal of the cross of Christ in his letter to the Church of Corinth. And here I want us to pause for a moment and think about our own relationships. I'm sure, I hope, that none of us have achieved the scale of violently scandalous triangling that Herod managed in his life. Maybe you need dictatorial levels of power for that. But casting anxiety and guilt onto a third person and expecting them to bear the burden, I think we've all done that. So where, I might ask us to consider, in our relationships, do we exclude or marginalise or disparage someone in order to keep the peace with someone else? Where do we find ourselves perhaps distancing from others to escape the tension of their anxiety? We all do this, and the lesson, I think, of Herod is that it is always ultimately a destructive process, even if it feels good in the short term. So I wonder if we can hear some wisdom here to take a moment and take stock and maybe make a resolution to be a bit less reactive in the triangled relationships that we find ourselves caught up in. Can we find ways of staying more emotionally neutral in order to stay equally connected with each of the two parties in the triangles that make up our lives? Can parents resist the temptation to scapegoat the child? Can a parent and a child resist the temptation to blame the other parent? Can two friends find a way of not ganging up on the third friend in the office? Are we able to be peacemakers who bring people together rather than colluders in scapegoating? Can we be the calm presence in the midst of others' anxiety? This, I suggest, might be part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus doesn't feature in the story of the death of John, except by allusion. But if we look at how Jesus reacts in the earlier part of the chapter, we can see him modelling what a psychologist would probably today call the non-anxious presence and encouraging his disciples to do the same. So, rewind to the earlier part of our reading. When Jesus sent out the twelve, two by two, to go into the villages around Galilee with authority over unclean spirits, they were sent with a kind of emotional non-engagement mantra. Their mission was to do battle with the spirits of uncleanness that declared some to be in and some to be out. It was not to use a modern phrase, to go out and feed the trolls. They were sent out to declare as clean those whom the purity laws of the day were declaring unacceptable. 
They were sent out to undermine the very ideology that created and sustained triangles of oppression, scapegoating, and isolation in their society. But what they were not sent to do was to go around having massive arguments with people who didn't agree with them. Jesus is very clear. If a place would not receive them or their message, they were simply to leave and move on. And I think that many of us who engage in social media would do well to hear this wisdom. Yes, we can make our contribution with courage, declaring the truth, for example, that all are welcome in God's kingdom of love, but we are not to get sucked in by those who then want to argue us into submission. I'll give you an example. Many of you will have seen the video on YouTube from a couple of years ago now of the same-sex wedding that we held here at Bloomsbury. You know the one where the singer Sam Smith turned up and I didn't know who he was. Well, it's had nearly six million views on YouTube and it spent its first week after it was released in the top 10 worldwide on YouTube. Just as an aside, I very much doubt that Bloomsbury's appearance on Songs of Praise next Sunday will have anything like this much impact, but do set your recorders anyway. Well, the, the video of the same-sex wedding was an example, I think, of this church casting out a spirit of uncleanness. I think the evil spirit of uncleanness would say that LGBTQ people are not fully and equally welcome amongst God's people. But we as a church said to that spirit that it is wrong and that we will not let it determine our behavior or beliefs. However, I don't encourage you to do this, but you only have to spend a few minutes reading the comments on YouTube under that video, and there are many thousands of them, to realize that not everybody who has seen that video can receive the message of inclusion and welcome that we are proclaiming and enacting as a church. Honestly, I think I could have spent most of the last two years doing little else other than arguing online with those who still cling to unclean spirits of homophobia and exclusion, and it would have taken all of my energy and all of my time, so I don't and I haven't. To use Jesus' phrase, I shake the dust off my feet and move on, because there are many others who need to hear the gospel of love that Jesus has sent us to proclaim, and who will receive that message with gladness and joy. Of course, it is the mission of the Twelve to the villages of Galilee that triggers Herod first hearing about Jesus. And in his fear and his guilt, he thinks at first that it's John the Baptist risen from the grave to haunt him. And those of us who are obedient to the call of Jesus to proclaim a message of radical, scandalous inclusion and to cast out spirits of uncleanness wherever we find them can also expect that we too will trigger opposition from those powers in the world that have a vested interest in resisting challenge. Sometimes the opposition will be at the level of the popular crowd, making vile and anonymous comments on social media. Sometimes it will be at the level of structural authorities, as the powers that be close ranks to resist systemic change. And sometimes, as Jesus discovered in his hometown, the resistance to the liberating gospel will take place amongst our family and our friends. I may have mentioned this before, but I have a particular personal attachment to the saying used by Jesus that prophets are not without honor except in their hometown. Rather peculiarly, this was my baptismal verse from when I was 14, 
I was baptised by the minister of my home church, and as I came up out of the water, his practice was to recite a Bible verse over people. It's not something we do here, but it was his thing. And as I came up out of the water, he said, remember, Simon, a prophet is not without honour except in their own town. And I can remember thinking, what? <laughs> anyway, um, I've taken the Latin, uh, Nemo profeta in patria, as my personal motto. If I ever get a coat of arms, it'll be on there. Anyway, the thing is, the people who know us best, who have known us for years, who know all our faults and have long memories for them, are the people who can find it most difficult to believe us when we tell them of our experience of God's radical, scandalous, absolute love. And make no mistake about it, it is a scandal. If Paul describes the cross as a scandal, and if Herod's behavior was scandalous, here at the beginning of our chapter for today, in chapter 6, verse 3, Mark tells us that those in Jesus' hometown were scandalized by his words and his deeds. This phrase, they took offense at him, uses the Greek word scandalizo. They were literally scandalized by him. Robert Hamilton Kelly describes the scandal or offense that Jesus creates in his hometown as being the love of what one hates and the hatred of what one loves. And he says that in this tension between love and hatred lies the pulsating heart of envy, jealousy, and incipient violence. On the one hand, they love Jesus, the local boy made good. But on the other hand, they hate what he's doing and saying as he unpicks and challenges all of their deeply held assumptions about what's right and what's wrong, what's clean and what's unclean, who's in and who's out. Unlike the woman in the crowd who we met last week and whose step of faith opened the path to healing and inclusion, those who have known Jesus since childhood end up closing ranks and closing their minds to his challenge. The experience of Jesus, it seems to me, here, parallels, for example, the fear of every queer teenager who has struggled to find the courage to be open with their parents, family, and friends because they're scared that those who love them will now also hate them. This is the fear of every person who finds themselves put on the spot in what was once a welcoming space, but which has suddenly become a potentially hostile environment. Choosing to speak out for truth and justice and inclusion, choosing to act against evil spirits of uncleanness that declare people unclean unnecessarily, can lead to indifference or condemnation from those who have previously valued and loved us. If I'm honest, I get a shade of this in how I feel sometimes standing in the midst of my fellow Baptist ministers at association and union gatherings. For many decades now, the Baptist family has been my family. But now I know that there are many there who are deeply scandalized by me and by Bloomsbury. And that's tricky. A prophet is not without honor, except in their hometown. And this is the challenge I'd like to leave with us this morning. For those of us who call Bloomsbury home, how can we ensure that we don't miss or squash or ignore the prophetic voices that God still sends us to challenge us 
to take our faith journey further and deeper into the scandalous love of God? Whose are the voices that we have a tendency to ignore because they don't come from where we expect or because they don't say the things that we want to hear? I ask myself this question because I am no longer the 14-year-old with a burning message to proclaim in a church not ready to hear it. When I volunteered to get involved in the church after that, I was told I could help with the photocopying. (laughs) I'm now the man at the front with a voice and a literal platform on which to stand. Last year, when we had our series on inclusive church, we made a point of inviting preachers from each of the marginalised communities to come and share with us from their experience. So we had a preacher who was black talking to us about ethnic exclusion. We had somebody who lived with a disability talking to us about inclusion of people who are disabled, and so on. This year, with dawn on maternity leave, we are getting a lot of Simon at the front which is fine. I enjoy it. But we do need to make sure that as a congregation, we remain open to hearing the voices from the margins, from the young or the younger, from those who don't normally get heard. Because these are most likely to be where the prophetic challenge to go deeper and more intentionally into God's love will come from. So, did you know that this year on the Sundays when I'm away, with one exception, we're making a point of inviting preachers who are not white, straight, cisgendered men? That's an important start. But I wonder if we can do more in our friendships, in our house groups, in the books we read, in the ways we are with each other, in the podcasts we listen to, to ensure that we don't miss the scandalous voices of the marginalised prophets. You see, the danger will be that we triangle against them, conspiring to alleviate the anxiety they cause us by scapegoating them into silence. Whereas the path of Christ calls us to the risky, difficult way of intentionally listening to those voices which make us most uncomfortable, because they are the voices that challenge our preconceptions If you only ever listen to voices that reinforce what you already think, you're going to miss the prophets. The scandal here is that it is in those voices that we are most likely to encounter grace and healing and the path to becoming more like Christ. So, this is my challenge. Let's listen carefully and let's listen well. Great God of all the earth, we recognize with sorrow and repentance in our hearts that all too easily we, your created people, rush to the judgment of others. We divide humanity one from another, condemning some and vindicating others, always placing ourselves on the side of the righteous. We isolate those who do not look, live or love like we do. And we put them apart, telling ourselves that we are right because they are wrong. 
But we hear from your words that in this we bring judgment on ourselves, every bit as much as we would heap judgment on those we would condemn. Forgive us, dear Lord. May we instead learn to see others as you see them, rather than as we have learned to see them. May we be given the insight of your spirit to see through difference, to discover the common humanity that underlies all our interactions, all our relationships. And so we pray today for a world that seems intent on tearing itself apart. We look around us at your world and we see so much strife, division, war, suffering and pain. We see people rushing to judgment of the other and calling down the fires of hell on those who are not like them. From the breakup of countries and unions to the hatred of one religious group for another, to the scapegoating of the weak and vulnerable at every level of our society, we see humans intent on dividing one from another in the interests of naming some as right and some as wrong. So we pray today for the victims of terrorism. We hold before you all those who will live the rest of their lives with pain and horror. We pray for those who will have been turned from the path of peace towards violence by horror visited upon them. And we pray for those who work at great cost to themselves to build bridges between divided peoples. We pray for those who build bridges between Islam and Christianity. We recognise that so much of the violence we face in our time comes from people who claim to be acting in obedience to divine commands. And we ask that people of violent faith will hear the small, still voice of calm in the midst of their rush to righteous condemnation of the other. We pray for the persecuted church and for any who face a martyr's death. May peace and justice prevail as your kingdom comes on earth as in heaven. We pray for the victims of racism in our city of London for those who are marginalised, bullied and attacked because of their ethnicity. And we pray for asylum seekers, refugees and all those who are denied the possibility of fullness of life because of who they are. May we as your people in this city be catalysts of inclusion as we live out our conviction that all people are created in your image. We pray particularly for the Syrian sisters who have recently moved to the West End from the refugee camp in Iraq. Help us to set aside whatever privilege we have inherited and to be willing to meet the other as equal, whoever they may be. We pray for all those who find themselves victimised or excluded because of their minority sexuality. We pray for especially those who have been isolated from communities of faith and whose experience of your body has been divisive rather than inclusive.
And we thank you for those who are willing to speak out and for those who are willing to reach out and embrace difference. We pray for the homeless and the vulnerable, for those whose economic and personal circumstances give rise to precarious living. And we name before you the work of our partners and activities who seek to bring support and progression to those who find themselves trapped by life. So we think particularly of C4WS and the Winter Night Shelter, and of the Simon Community and our Evening Centre, and of the volunteers from this community who cook and serve and offer love and friendship. And so we pray for our church in all of its glorious diversity, we ask that this place will be a beacon of light, love and inclusion, where we discover together that within the love of Christ, all other barriers that would divide are rendered irrelevant. We pray that all will be welcome here, regardless of ethnicity, social standing, gender, ability or sexuality. And we pray that we will have the courage to live the truth of your glorious gospel of unity in the midst of our divided city. Amen. <laughs>